human beings of the world, it's time to enter the spoilerverse through our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on scpod.net. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Join the cult of the Spoilerverse, and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan, that's Mr. Horsley, and today on the show, well, it's one of the most, I don't know, I don't, could I say one of the most celebrated authors? I say I think you could. I mean, two million copies of Warhammer Sold says he's done, he's done some work. Oh my God. 30 years in the business, 50 yeah. novels, a guy is amazing, yep. Dan Abnett. Dan Abnett, over from the, from across the pond in Cherry Old England, Merry Old England. Um, we wow. got up super early. Jeff and I did get up, got up early to talk with him. I think it was like 6, 7 a.m. Pacific time. So Jeff was fine because he's in the East Coast. But for me, it was like right. early as hell. So right. we got up, talked with him, talked with him about you know Marvel and, and DC and his time on Valiant because he's currently writing for Valiant. He's currently writing for DC. He's worked at Marvel, worked at Marvel UK. Talked about how we got into comic books. Talked about how we got into the comic book business. And nice. talked, I mean, we talked for, for, for a while. And the guy is not only a plethora of information about freaking everything. He's just a pleasure to talk with. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah. let's sit back and listen to Mr. Abner in his own words. All right, everybody. Welcome back. We are here and lucky enough to talk with Dan Abnett. So, Dan, how, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing very well. Um, global pandemic notwithstanding. Yeah, no, I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're, I'm in Seattle, so I'm like in the epicenter of the U.S. pandemic of, of everything going on here. So it's crazy. <laughs> yes. I think everyone's practicing some self-isolation at the moment. They, yeah. Lots of hand washing. I have five kids, so I'm like, my kids are washing their hands constantly right now. And <laughs> they just canceled school for six weeks here. And they canceled the Comic-Con. They've canceled like all the events here locally. So it's it's kind of crazy. Yes, no, it certainly is. I've had a, I was meant to do uh, just over the next couple of weeks several sort of things at universities, talks at universities and things. And they've all been all been shut down. Luckily, and I know it's become a cliche now because it's all over the place. But you know, sort of freelancers, particularly writers and artists, uh, are very used to self isolation. So it's like we're in training for this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is going to carry on regardless. <laughs> right. Story for an empty stories for an empty world. Well, well, those like me actually kind of enjoy this as well. So it's like finally, it's the dream come true. I don't have to be around people. <laughs> 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 my whole life led up to this moment right now <laughs> so dan you've been in comics for a while looks like uh a terrifyingly long time yes i think technically speaking this is my 32nd year of professional writing and comics and well obviously my writing is more than more than just comics but uh yeah i started uh started professionally on staff at marvel uk in london back in uh 87 oh my goodness me that's a long Jeez. time ago that's the year my wife was born <laughs> <laughs> well, thank not to make that. you feel old but 
<laughs> so how, how'd you get into Marvel UK? How'd you get into writing comics with them? Uh, uh, it was a complete fluke, an accident. I, 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 uh, so kind of short version. I've always been interested as a kid. I loved my favorite things to do were draw pictures and write stories. They were the two things I was, I, I liked and I was also good at. I was, my parents were both artists. So I, I read a lot as a kid and, you know, just those were just the things as a kid that I did as a hobby, you know, I, and, um, Eight or nine years old, I essentially discovered comics thanks to a friend of mine at school. I moved school. A friend of mine had back then Marvel. You couldn't get Marvel or DC in the UK very much, but you could get uh, black and white reprints. And there was a black and white reprint of Marvel in particular, and that's what he had inspired me. And 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 I suddenly realised that as a child, there I could I could do my two favourite things, which is write stories and draw pictures at the same time if I produce my own comics. So I used to write and draw my own comics. That's what I did for years as a kid. Nice. I, I then kind of stopped. For a while I was going to go to art college. I didn't. Um, I realized that I was sort of better at the English side of things than I was at the art side. Ended up going to university. I had dreams of being a writer. And at the end of the entire process, coming out of university, not quite knowing what I was going to do, someone remarking upon my interest in comics said, you should get a good job in comics. And I went, <laughs> oh, God, is that even a thing that happens to people? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was fully aware that, of the creators of the comics that I loved reading, but it never occurred to me that there was a sort of comics industry that you could enter. So I got the address of Marvel UK in London. They were at the time, uh, they still sort of exist. Uh, they're, now, they're now called something else, but they, they basically had the rights to produce Marvel material in the UK. So they were re responsible for a lot of the reprinting that was going on. But they also originated a lot of material on um, junior licensed products, which so they, they were creating comics as well. And I just wrote to them on a whim to say, you know, I'm interested. And they, <clears throat> they wrote back and said, please come in and uh, have a chat with us. And I went, oh, that's lovely. So I wandered down to it with Bayswater in London. I went down to Bayswater, and what I didn't realise was the they had at the time been uh, nationally advertising for editorial trainees, and they thought I was applying for a job. I was, <laughs> and I didn't know. So I arrived, and there was a room full of other candidates, and I went, okay. Um, and <laughs> uh, so I, I adapted to the situation rapidly, and and had an interview, and uh, got one of the editorial trainee places they were advertising That's awesome. and started working there i mean it was just pure i say pure fluke i just thought i was going to get an interesting day out of the comic company and it wasn't that at all i ended up with a job <laughs> and I, I started working there in fact my my early job there once i'd done the sort of training it was all there was no desktop publishing this was all old school stuff so i'm I, you know i can i can basically give me a stick and a barn and a whatever <laughs> and i can put a comic together and uh my, my essentially my first job was as assistant editor on the brand new weekly comic they were launching, which was the Real Ghostbusters. Oh, uh, and nice. my boss Richard Starkings, who now is is Comic Craft and Elephant Man and everything like that, and and, and uh, we uh, we worked on that. And I so I spent several years there uh, working on Ghostbusters and Transformers and Thundercats and, and Galaxy Rangers and Thomas the Tank Engine, everything else that we were originating, um, and. Uh, and I loved it. I learned a lot, made a lot of friends and contacts throughout the industry because we, you know, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a sort of, it was a, it was, the, it was part of the heart of the of the British comic uh, scene. And there was a lot of artists who were now internationally famous who were sort of starting out at the same time. I think my very first Action Force story that I ever wrote was drawn by a young guy called Brian Hitch. You know, and it was that oh. kind of weird, weird connected tissue of, of, of the comics industry. And anyway, we, the, uh, the the pay was terrible. <laughs> 
absolutely terrible. And uh, they encouraged us all to freelance to do extra, often color, things like coloring and lettering. They encouraged us all to do these things, partly to increase our uh, skill sets and partly because it was a way of doing some overtime. Right. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of hands on physical, practical work to do. And one of the things you could do was to write stories and they encouraged the, the, us to write stories mainly so that we had a better grasp of how stories worked so that we could then better edit the freelancers we're employing. So I wrote a lot for Ghostbusters in particular. In fact, I was Egon Spengler for 170 issues writing, a uh, writing a Spengler spirit guide. That's and, a lot. Um, <laughs> And I uh, and I loved it, and I learned, and, and and so after several years of doing that and various other bits and pieces, I realised that although I enjoyed editing, I enjoyed being in that environment. Uh, what I really wanted to do was write, and so I I, I sort of went freelance eventually, and 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 so so I, I and carried on doing that, and, and I've been doing it ever since, really. Um, uh, quite a big plunge to go freelance, but it sort of paid off for me. So I, I that that's really how I I got into it, and. Obviously, spent the first, sort of the first ten or so years just writing comics. So I, I started to do some of the UK, US format, UK produced stuff like Knights of Pendragon and Death's Head, uh, and then worked at uh, started to work at Marvel US as well on, on the Punisher, etc., 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 and then eventually DC, and then weirdly came back in a full circle to also work for 2000 AD, which is Britain's great originated yeah. the Galaxy comic which i've worked for i've now worked for for longer than i was reading it as a kid that's crazy so so yeah a bit of everything um uh say sort of really really a sequence of of weird events that brought me to it but i obviously landed in the right place and i guess about 10 years into my writing career as a freelancer uh, i'd always wanted to write novels as well uh, and I started, I was, I was contacted by Games Workshop who asked me to initially as a comic book writer to write some comic books for, for their, uh, Warhammer 40k, Warhammer 40,000, uh, license. And I was also a big fan of role-playing games and tabletop games. So I knew what it was. And within months I had been commissioned to write novels. And so I now also was, a, as my, I mean, wearing my second hat as a novelist, I have written Many, in fact, I've lost count. I think it's 50-something novels, not just Warhammer, but Doctor Who and all sorts of things. So I'm, I write comics and I write novels. And then in the last 10 years, I've also added game writing to that as well. So, <laughs> so you know, let, let me at it. I'm a gun for hire. Show me something and I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> that is awesome. There's so much to unpack there. Um, that, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, I love it. I love it. It's funny because you mentioned Death Set. I was going to ask you about that because when I was growing up as a kid uh, in the um, – you know, late 80s and then mid 90s and stuff like that when I was you know going through my adolescence of reading every comic book I could get my hands on my first introduction to Marvel UK or to any kind of the UK comics was first was Death's Head and then 2000 AD so when yep. you, and you worked on Death's Head too right Yes, yes. It was uh, Simon Furman and uh, and uh, Jeff Senior and a number of other people sort of did Death Set when it was sort of it's sort of a character that sort of emerged from the originated Transformers strip and then it got an identity of its own. And then for reasons that that are not only too complicated to go into, but uh, that I can't now actually remember in detail, <laughs> uh, we decided to revamp it and Liam Sharp redesigned Death's Head as a character into the into what is now known as Death's Head Two. And I was asked by Paul Neary to write it, and so that that was that was a, a big break. It, it, it followed on from, as I said, the, the, the less less known, although <clears throat> quite impactful comic we did called Knights of Pendragon, which was a, mm-hmm. a US format series with a very ecological and mythological bent, uh, which featured characters like uh, Captain Britain and Union Jack and everything. It was sort of a British British eco spooky superhero thing. 
Uh, and on the, on the basis of that, I mean, it led to, led to Death's Head, which was sort of a bigger breakout hit in America. Yeah, I remember, I remember Knights of Pendragon. I remember not, not when it came out, but later on, seeing it and, and picking yeah. it up. And it was, it was interesting. The Death's Head thing, uh, one and two, always confused me as a kid. I didn't understand what was going on. So I just, for me, it was like, oh, it's a sequel, you know? I don't think anybody did. I think, the, <laughs> I think it's quite interesting that they both characters now sort of exist in their own right. Right. Everybody, depending on how old you are, everybody has their own favorite Death's Head. I think there are action figures of both. Uh, and they sort of both crop up. It, 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 people tend to be very, very stalwart in which one they support, but they both coexist. One is literally an extension of the other. You, we could easily have a story with both of them in it. Oh, um, shit. <laughs> I, I don't know. Weird. weird. I, I, I think probably deep down that the, there are certain aspects of Death's Head 1's design that are still quite Transformer-ish, even though he had a very distinct look. Right. And that's what they were trying to get away from to avoid Hasbro coming after them with a um machete but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah both, both exist and, and and uh i think it depends depends which comics you read it i i have sort of brought death's head 2 back into the marvel fold several times in the cosmic books like uh, nova uh but death's head <laughs> one has got obviously a life of his own in in his own books at marvel so it's yeah it's weird it's one of those things not the only character in comics. There's more than one version of i think right right it'd be interesting if they brought him in, into uh into the movies at some point Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely would. Yeah, yeah, it'd be, it'd be very interesting. I think, I think, uh, I think. Although there are many, many, many great Marvel characters who have yet to be represented in the uh, Marvel Cinematic, uh, they also did a lot of the very obvious ones in the first first wave. And I think it's interesting to see what will start appearing now, where where they seem to delight in in going for slightly unexpected characters. Yeah. To the thrill of the crowd. Although I have to say, obviously, my my biggest experience of that was. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Uh, which I'm writing for them, and which is what they turned into the movies. Good, good. Yeah, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Obviously, that, that was a book I wrote for them based on characters that I'd loved as a kid growing up that hadn't really quite worked for whatever reason. And then they turned that into the movie, and that was a very, very unexpected experience for everybody concerned. That that that, uh, that to do a Marvel cosmic film, which we were all expecting, and that they would go to this uh, this this sort of cultish guardians of the galaxy rather than something more obvious so uh yeah anything can happen who knows when 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 death said might show up i mean it's just he's just weird enough to where it makes sense for them to put in the movies now right he's just off enough to be, oh yeah I, I get it now oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely yes yes i think he would work extremely well in one of the films that's got that sort of uh thor ragnarok or guardians of the galaxy feel to it for, you know he did with that slightly sort of quirky quirky sense of everything i think that would work yeah it would it would be great You've written for so many different companies, so many different titles, and so many different continuities. Do you ever get confused on what's happening? <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Uh, and I'll tell you, for, well, no, actually, that's a lie. There have been occasions <laughs> where I have got terribly confused just because of – because. Of, no, I, I, I've done a lot of work for, as you say, for a lot of people. And um, it often – Two things that seem to stagger people when they talk to me about what I do. One is how, how much – I produce. Uh, there's sort of no shutting me up. Uh, but the other, the other thing is that, that that they are always astonished that I am doing multiple things at the same time. Uh, you know, they they assume that you know I write this comic and then I then I stop and then I go and write this novel and then I stop and then I go and write this game or whatever. But my working week is a is a is a finely balanced relationship of plate spinning. 
where I where I sort of literally do everything at the same time. So I'll get up in the morning and I might write the chapter, the next chapter of whatever novel I'm working on, and then I might stop and have a cup of tea and then go and write whatever comic script is due next, a strip for 2000 AD or, you know, the next issue of something for DC or something like that. And then, you know, a day or so later, I'll be be working on a game and, and this kind of stuff. And people have no idea how I keep track of it. Um, there are, There is a trick to keeping track of it. I'm not sure what that is. It's obviously something I do intuitively. But I've discovered that it's um, – I find it creatively really useful to do that because I think if you work on any one particular thing, uh, no matter how much you love it, that's, you know, in, in my case, the, the obvious thing would be something like Warhammer 40,000. I love writing Warhammer. I've done a lot of it. Um, but if I only did that, I think there would come a point – probably every week or cumulatively over a period of months where I just be, I'm, you know, I never want to see a space Marine again. I'm so sick of being stuck here in this thing. Uh, so the, the, the opportunity to just mix things up on a daily basis to spend one morning in the 40 K universe and then the afternoon in the DC universe and the following day in, in, in the doctor who universe and then, you know, whatever, um, means that I'm never, I never get things don't get stale don't get don't get stuck for me creatively so I think I actually use up more of my time uh because I don't need to sort of I don't need as much as it were downtime to recover from one place before I go back into it does that make sense so if you know if I wrote 40k all day I might need to take the following morning off because I'm up to my limit with 40k before I can come back to it but now I actually I can switch from one thing to another and so the only real difficulty there in terms of productivity, is remembering which universe you're in, uh, which does, I know, make me sound like a time lord, but it does. And there was only one, I think there was one occasion a few years ago I had invented swear words for uh, the, for the, the Warhammer novels I wrote. I'd invented swear words for a strip I wrote for 2008 called Sinister Dexter, uh, and there are also invented swear words in Guardians of the Galaxy. So, yeah, it must be about 10, 15 years ago that this happened. And... I realized I'd written the scripts that week and I'd used the wrong invented swear words in the wrong universe. <laughs> but that was the only time where it was like a real kind of, oh, I've got to go back and correct that now. Um, <laughs> That's very cool. <laughs> well, the only thing I think is very really fascinating about you is that because you've written for so many different publishers, you have a unique perspective, I think, on working with these publishers. Is there something that each publisher does that's maybe uniquely better or interesting or something that you kind of notice that you know with this company i really need to do something right like this versus maybe um dc or um valiant yeah 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 yeah. i know what you mean and that is absolutely the case i think if you're if you're a if you're a sort of freelance writer uh and 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 essentially a writer of tie-in or licensed product because a lot of what we're talking about is that i mean i have written my own creator own stuff and, and my own sort of original novels Etc. 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 But a lot of it, even when you're writing for, say, the Marvel or DC universe, you're writing, you're writing tie-in, you're writing characters that pre-exist. You're, you're contributing to an IP, and you're, you, you've got to learn, you've got to learn how those characters work. So no matter how uh, original and how creative you're being in trying to bring something new and fresh and, and tell a story, or stylistically even tell a story that's new, you've still got to get it right. Uh, you've got to respect the heritage and legacy of that character. So, with every company, uh, there is a sort of, you sort of need to learn the ground rules and respect them. And those ground rules aren't even static. So, for instance, when I was working for, for an example, Marvel back in the early 90s, it's very different from working 
for Marvel in the mid-noughties or now. You know, the, the, character, the, the, the profile of a company, the attitudes, the tastes of a company will change over time. So there is a, there is, you, need to be a certain, you need to be sort of reactive to what current needs are and what current interests are. There's, there have been occasions with many different companies where uh, there are certain things I know that there's no point pitching because they're not interested in. And then five years later, that's exactly what they're looking for. You know, there's sort of the things go in and out of fashion all the time. But yes, they're, they're, they come, there are always, generally speaking, attr- particularly attractive reasons for working for, with particular companies. Uh, the opportunity to write great characters. Um, I think Marvel has got an amazing universe that, that appeals to me mainly because I grew up reading it. I'm more familiar great. with the Marvel universe than I am, for instance, with the DC universe. So it's always appealed to me very much. And I like that there is a, there is a sort of Marvel flavor that I've always enjoyed connecting with. Um, I have, have conversely, though, an, a long and extremely enjoyable relationship with DC, who've got such iconic, long-standing characters, and have, to me, a sort of uh, a, a more uh, more structured universe uh, that has withstood the test of time and every attempt to reboot it, one way or another. And I have particularly good working relationships with DC editors. I've always found them very nice, very thorough people. And, and the, the, even though it's just, it's all superheroes, the tone with which you approach a DC book is different to the tone that you'd approach a Marvel book, I think. I mean, in, in all kinds of, uh, of difficult to quantify ways, but they're just, there is just instinctively, you're feeling it in a different way. And then by contrast, obviously, uh, I don't know, the, the, the Warhammer universe is, you know, a grim darkness of the far future where everything's on fire and no one's happy. And it's it's gothic and it's depressing and it's it's kind of traumatic. And it's a very, very different thing. I, I think of Warhammer as being very, very British in its sensibility as a science fiction product. It's, it's sort of so nihilistic. Uh, and 2000 AD, uh, which I love and I adore 2000 AD, is... Uh, uh, that they are much more superhero, uh, sorry, much more science fiction than superhero. Yeah. And uh, they're telling their stories in a weekly anthologized form. So five pages a week rather than 20 pages a month. So the, the storytelling pattern is different. Uh, and 2080 to me breeds an enormous amount of creativity. Quite often when I'm, you know, I will generate spontaneously generate ideas and I'll quite often go, well, I, I can use that in the next DC story I tell because there's a very DC thing, or I can use that in the next Marvel, whatever. Some stories I go, that's just weird. Oh, that'll be 2080. <laughs> so, so sometimes, and I love writing for 2080, and 2080 itself obviously isn't just one thing. It's an anthology. So I have six or seven strips in that that I've created that I write on a regular basis. That's insane. Uh, having also written their classic characters like Joe's Dread and a Rogue Trooper and uh, and that kind of stuff, but there's you know there's Sinister Dexter, there's Kingdom, there's Grey Area, uh, there's uh, Brink, a, a series that Ian Culbard and I produced for 2000 AD, which for the last two years has been voted the most popular thing in 2000 AD, uh, which is wonderful, and we love doing that. And so quite often, just the, the point of the week where I stop and write just a simple five page strip for uh, whatever's due next to 2000 AD is an opportunity it's just a creative joy if you if you if you if you're with the best will in the world slogging your way through a, a dc crossover where you where it where there's a lot of heavy lifting and mechanical thought involved about just how you make your story work no matter how much fun it is how you make your story work in relation to a broader universe 2000 ad is a place you can just go and be spontaneous and and do something so yes everyone has their own 
flavor. And sometimes I even coordinate my working timetable based on what kind of mood I need to be in to do things. I mean, if you're a freelancer, you just get on with the job anyway, even if you're not feeling up to it. You just, you know, not wait, you don't wait for the muse to strike. You just get on with it. But I do know that there are certain things that are more fun if I'm in a you know, a very sort of driven, creative mood, that's a great time to get on with a big, like a big story for DC or something like that. And if I just want to sort of relax and put a smile on my face, that's a time to write something for 2000 ID or the magazine or whatever, you know. So there are different ways of handling it. And you just sort of, you kind of, you kind of measure your, uh, what you're doing and the sort of things you do according to what you know the editors are going to be receptive to. That, that was a long-winded answer. I'm very sorry about that. No, that was, that was great, though, because you went through a lot of things. I had some follow-up questions, but you kind of answered them in that exploration, which is which is wonderful. <laughs> makes it easy. <laughs> that's, uh, that's me answering my own questions. It's, it's, <laughs> hey, it, it, it makes my job easier. It's totally cool. So Marvel UK, right? Yeah, that was a big thing. And this is the question that I could – I don't know. I never, I didn't – growing up, I know I knew Marvel UK, but was there was there a DC counterpart to that in the, in the UK? As far as I am able to remember, there is there was not. I think nowadays certain DC titles are republished over here in different formats. That, that was really it. Um, once I, when I was a kid and growing up, I was I was aware of the British comics industry, which produced, as I say, very different comics to the American. They were very very yeah. few superheroes. So I grew up reading things like uh, Battle and Action. Uh, which were which were sort of boys comics of the 1970s and that kind of stuff. And there was there were other things. There was there was a there was a kind of educational magazine called Look and Learn, mm-hmm. which was uh, very sort of highbrow and the sort of thing your parents would approve of. But in it, there was every every issue. There was a two page, fully painted, beautiful thing called the Trigon Empire, which was a science fiction strip, mm-hmm. which is just now being collected. And it is just is it's Don Lawrence, and it's just the most spectacular thing. Uh, if you've never seen the Trigon Empire, look out, go and go and look for it. Uh, the collections are finally becoming available. Just unbelievable uh, artwork and, and, and wonderful 1960s sort of stories. Um, so that, so that I was aware of comic storytelling um, and obviously was aware of 2000 AD when it came along because that had, had, was a life-changing effect on, on uh, the, 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 the comic readers of the, of the UK. But American comics, and I mean by that particularly superhero comics, but also things like Western comics, were around, but you, in, not in any formal way. Uh, you would occasionally go into a newsagent and you'd see some American comics. They were quite over, quite often brought over as the ballast in ships. Mm. Can you believe that? <laughs> really? So, <laughs> so you'd go into a shop and you'd go. I don't. You know, I, there was no telling what a shop would have or whether it would ever have the next issue of something you'd been interested in. So you might find a random issue of Iron Man or you know, the brave and the bold or something in a shop and go, what's this? I have no idea what this is. I have no idea of the hundreds of issues that came before it or came after it, but it's great of itself. And that for most of my childhood uh, was the case with DC comics. They occasionally cropped up. So of course I knew who Superman and Batman were, right, but right. I didn't have any sense of DC as a publisher, as a, as a publishing house. Marvel for whatever reason had got this London office, which reprinted uh, their strips uh, in the, I think from a, from an American perspective, you would look at it and go, "That is horrific! A horrific crime they committed." <laughs> so they would publish weekly comics. So the British Marvel UK, uh, of which there were many titles, but they would be weekly. They would be large British format, so 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 you know, a magazine size rather than US comic book size. They would be black and white, apart from the cover. So there was no color artwork. 
It was just the black line work that was reprinted. And all the strips, and, they, and I'm talking about reading things like classic FF, Kirby FF, mm-hmm. uh, Dark Avengers, George Tusker Iron Man, um, Gene Colan Daredevil, all, 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 all the stuff that had been around in the 60s that they were now reprinting. They anthologized in five-page installments <laughs> in their comics. So my favorite comic was one called The Mighty World of Marvel, right. which every week in black and white had five pages of the Hulk, five pages of the Avengers, I think five pages of Doctor Strange, and five pages of whatever else they wanted to put in it, <laughs> which could be something really obscure like Warlock or uh, um, uh, oh God knows. I mean, all sorts of different things appeared in there. Uh, and that's what you've got. So in the course of a month, obviously you get to read a month's worth of American Marvel, mm-hmm. but but Marvel US Marvel UK would produce their own splash pages and next issue boxes to 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 sort of um, cover the gaps to to build it all together. So it was it, it was the weirdest way of reading it. And once <laughs> I finally got to my teens and discovered that there were places like Forbidden Planet and Duck, there were Golden Eyed, the comic shops that actually imported the American originals, that was a sort of a game changer. Yeah. I decided to read the originals and then went back and read my favorite stories in, in the original, in their original intended format, full <laughs> color, in 22 pages at a time. But weirdly, nowadays, I have an odd nostalgia for these, frankly, oh, crappy sure. <laughs> reprints because there was something beautiful about them. My first – actually, this is a story worth telling. Uh, my first experience was, was, as I say, a school friend. I changed schools and my school friend – had this, he was another artist. He used to draw his own stuff, and they were very dynamic. And and I was so impressed by it. I, I, I asked what inspired him, and he showed me his. He was a reader of the British Marvel reprints, mm-hmm. which I had, you know, say, I'd never really come across. And that's what was inspiring his drawings. And one day I went to his house, and he had. Uh, we, were, we were just hanging out, and he had loads of comics, loads of British Marvels everywhere. So, you know, Spider-Man Weekly, Mighty World of Marvel, um, you know, uh, uh, Planet of the Apes featuring Dracula Lives and all sorts of <laughs> great um, and And they were everywhere. He had so many of them because he was a mad fan. And his mum came in the room and in, 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 a, in, a, in a moment that, uh, that she had no idea was about to change the entire course of my life, said – Oh, you've got so many comics, and you haven't got room to keep them in your cupboard. Why don't you give Dan the ones you don't want? <laughs> so I went home that day with a stack of British Marvel, uh, probably about four inches deep. I probably had about fifty or sixty comics that, that my friend had just said, "Yeah, I don't want that one. Don't want that one. You can have these." And he was just giving these around. So they they weren't even the same title. They were like six or seven different titles, which meant, in American terms, was six or seven times four or five different american right. books that i had bits of <laughs> they weren't sequential uh, i had very few issues that were more than two or three in a row and, and so i had i had in the most extraordinary jigsaw sense a pile of comics that were sometimes the beginnings of stories with no end sometimes the ends of stories with no beginning sometimes the middles and they weren't even the complete american book so so you could it couldn't be more more of a mosaic but i read those comics over and over and over and over again for months and months and months, possibly years, whilst I finally persuaded my parents that actually I should be able to get a couple of Marvel comics to read on my own stuff. Um, And I think what happened was, in my mind, I filled in all the gaps. Mm -hmm. I filled in all the bits of those comics that were missing. I put the ends on stories that I only knew the beginnings of and the beginnings in whatever. And I wondered whether that had a very formative uh, effect on my imagination in terms of coming up with stories is that and playing Dungeons and Dragons filled in 
sort of story creating muscles that right. I think I've always since then. And in fact, and, and, and this is going to sound terrible, I don't mean it, but I have obviously since gone back and read the American anthologized, uh, collected, um, you know, omnibuses of uh, early Marvel stuff that includes the stories that I read, partially read as a kid in black and white. Right. And stories are magnificent, but often there is something oddly disappointing about the ways they actually <laughs> turned out they started or ended. Not because they're not great, and I mean, t- to be honest, they're you know, far better than anything I could imagine, but it was they're not what I imagined. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's a kind of weird thing. It's like, oh, I always thought Nick Fury ended up doing this, and of course he didn't. He did this instead. And, you know, it was uh, it, it, it's, it weird. I lo- I, 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 uh, somehow I think the gaps in my early comic education were more useful I needed the, to, there to be some comics to inspire me, but the gaps left room for my imagination. And in the same way, there was no DC, as I said, really yeah. systematically in the UK. So when I finally got to read some in the comic shops, it was a wonderful revelation. And when I finally got to work for DC, it was a, a, a delightful obligation to learn their continuity as a professional to go, I understand the format of comics, but I now need to learn the history of Nightwing. I need to work out who the Teen Titans were. I need to, you know, all those sorts of things. So so, so that was in itself a, a really good thing because it prompted you. I didn't have that kind of childhood knowledge to draw upon. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that why you have the nostalgia for those those stories, right? And why you go back and, you know, like, so to kind of relate to that, I when I was a kid, my dad used to take a, a cassette and he would record the audio from movies for our long trips. So our audio books yeah, was like yeah. the was like was like the audio for Back to the Future or the audio for Superman two or whatever, right? And that's how I experienced those movies for the first time was just straight audio. And so yeah. I, I would build the movie in my head, but then when I finally saw the movie, you know, a year or two later, when my dad finally let me watch it or whatever, you know, in my head I saw everything different. And still to today, yeah. when I watch Back to the Future or Superman two, I see what, what I imagined when I was eight nine years old, and I compare it to the movie. And I'm like, oh, this is good, but what I thought it was, I'm, I, I feel yeah. it should be this way. That's absolutely brilliant. But yeah, the pictures in your head are often brilliant. I, I, I was, a, I also was a big fan of radio. I'm Mr. Lamb, but I was a big fan of radio growing up. Yeah. In the in the the days before there were you know videos and stuff like that. Uh, and so my first experience of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which oh, I adore, same. was the radio version. Uh, the radio version, which predated, I think, predated the novels, but yep. pu- but the only thing that came before was the stage play. So to so when they finally st- the novels were great, but when they finally started making TV adaptations, which were fantastic and, yep. and movie adaptations. That they was like no, the pictures in my head were better. Yeah, that was the the great great thing. The pictures in your head are always better. I think uh, the radio play for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is so good, though. It's so much it's fun. Brilliant. I love that one. I, <laughs> I the, so, again, that was one of the ones my dad recorded the audio of. Right, the first one we ever first one I ever heard was the was the the BBC miniseries audio, like just the audio for it. Yeah. And then I heard the audio book. Then I heard then I heard the uh, the radio plays. And by the time I got the radio plays, I was like, oh, these are. Is one, that's one of my that's one of my all time favorite stories uh, is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I've read that book probably twenty times, and yeah. it's yeah it's 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 fantastic. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Of it. it was it hit exactly at the sweet spot of my early teens when it was incredibly uh, uh, inspirational. In fact, a friend of the a friend of mine and I at school uh, who we, we had recently got into role play, early Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. And we love, we love role playing games. We actually wrote ourselves and it must still exist somewhere, but we wrote ourselves a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy role playing game. Oh, nice. So we can <laughs> play that. I'm sure the rules don't stand up to close scrutiny, but anyway, I used to play it. My dad had the, uh, the text game, like it was a, the a computer game with all text. 
and you have to like oh, tell yes, it, yep, yes. go outside, lay in front of the tractor with a towel and, and figure out how to get, how to get <laughs> to the game. I could never get through like the first, I don't know, chapter of the book in that, in that text game. So I, I never figured out what to do, um, but I was also like 10 years old trying to do this, you know, but it was a lot of fun. Great fun. So you did some work for Valiant with Rye or, or, or I can't remember, is it Rye or Ray? It's Ray, right? Uh, I call him Ray, but then, uh, then it looks like Rye and I don't know. But, but anyway, <laughs> yes, I think it's entirely a subject of taste. I always, people sometimes come up to me at uh, conventions, particularly with Warhammer, and they say, I love your novels. How do you pronounce the name of that character? Right. And my answer to that is always, how do you pronounce it? Because once <laughs> I've written it, it's your responsibility. It's your, it belongs to you. So it, Rye or Ray is exactly how you uh, uh, want to say it. But yes, uh, yeah, I'm writing writing that for them at the moment and, and some other bits and pieces. I, I wrote for Valiant at the uh, mid-90s, and it was delightful to be invited back and to be given such a great character and a great artist to work with. Well, it's great that apparently Rai is the tomato of uh, superheroes. <laughs> you can pronounce however you want. What is interesting about Rai, in your opinion, or Ray? Uh, I think uh, I think he sh- he is he is the quintessence of what a lot of Valiant characters have, which is that the Valiant is 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 one of the great uh, unified comic universes alongside the Marvel and the DC universes, and it's a lot younger, obviously, but it has a much stronger bent towards uh, science fiction. And uh, what I might describe loosely as realism, it is, it, is, it is obviously full of superheroes, but they are a very different type of superheroes to the to the to the Marvel or DC models. And I find that writing for uh, Valiant on Rye, particularly, but on for for for, for other things, um, there is actually an opportunity to unleash some of my some of the science fiction writer in me that I use u- normally for novels and for 2000 AD, that there is uh, there, that, that their universe is one in which I can use ideas that, that, that it's not so much don't fit into Marvel or DC, but Marvel and DC have done in their own way so many times that they are no longer fresh. So in the Valiant universe, for instance, and this is just a hypothetical, but if you, if you wrote a, an alien invasion story in the Valiant universe, that would be a huge deal because it doesn't happen very often. It hasn't happened very often. Whereas if you do it in Marvel or DC, it's like, Oh, again, you know, this is another Indian race. Do you know what I mean? So there is there is a kind of it's a beautifully worked out universe, but there's there is a there is a kind of um, freshness to it where it is still capable of supporting in a really dramatic and big way the sorts of things that that, that, that other older comics perhaps it's become. No matter how freshly you do it, is tired. And and with 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 Ray or Ray, uh, uh, there is uh, I've I've sort of been given the future of the Valiant universe. It's, it's set, set in the year 4002 or whatever. Um, so it's sort of cosmic, which is my pati- very particular favorite thing to write. And there is an opportunity to do things and to sort of create a world. I'm not quite as uh, connected to uh, contemporary events in the Valiant universe. So I can extrapolate and I can do all sorts of very creative things. Uh, and that is, that is immense fun. And as I said, uh, uh, Juan, who is uh, the artist on that, is extraordinarily cinematic and brilliant in, in his detail. And so um, I write stuff knowing that that I can I can deliver. It will deliver on the the promise of the idea. So you know, because you know you're writing for an artist who's going yeah. to, to to render it in the most extraordinary detail, for instance. Uh, and that is a that is that's a real treat to be able to do. It, it means that in the Valiant universe, I think you can do. You can make greater drama out of something smaller. 
which sounds weird, but you can have two characters sort of just engage in a, a hand-to-hand fight or a, I don't know, a motorbike chase that I think DC and Marvel would go, oh, God, that's really tame. Can't it be on jetpacks in space with a, you know, we can, can we make this bigger and <laughs> bigger? Which, of course, you can. Right, right. But the Valiant Universe is, is grounded enough for, for the idea that somebody might crash their motorbike is a big deal and will be life-threatening to that character. And therefore, it is laden with inherent drama for those characters. And I think that's a really interesting thing. It's, it's like uh, it's like their levels are, are set, not, not, not less, but in a different place. So it, it is a, an opportunity to tell very different types of stories. So your current race series is based off of uh, Fallen World, which you also wrote. And then that's based on Ray 4001 by Matt. Kind of. For people who may want to jump into the series, how well versed do you need to be in the background of Ray from these other series to jump into this one? Uh, I, 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 with everything I write, one way or another, no matter who the publisher, I always try and make sure it's, it's accessible uh, as quickly as possible and, and requires the least amount of background research for a reader. There, there, there is a great rule of comics that every issue is someone's first. Uh, and I've, I've never tried to let go of that. Obviously, it helps with any great long, long-running character. It helps if you know the resonances of their continuity and, and what's gone on in the past, because then it gives added depth and meaning and, and importance and significance of the story. But uh, I'd like to think that you could pick up uh, a book like uh, Rye and, and be able to read it and understand what's going on and get into it. And if that then inspires you so much that you want to go out and get the back issues and the trades and catch up with where you are, that's fantastic. Um, so uh, the, the circumstance of, of Rye is simply that it's, it, is, it is the far future, that there is the, the – um, as depicted in Fallen World, uh, most of humanity lived in this utopian paradise in this uh, orbital uh, city called New Japan that was ruled over by a, a, an AI called Father who looked after them all. And Rai was his his son. He's semi-techno-organic, semi, uh, and he was the sort of champion and defender of New Japan. And in Fallen World, what happens, and in the, the stuff that Matt wrote before that, uh, Rai discovers that Father is, is, is not quite as nice as everybody thought he was. And this <laughs> is a sort of enforced utopia, uh, which is pretty grim. And uh Rai stands up for the common man and and sort of brings new japan crashing down onto the earth which has basically been left to rewild over a period of several thousand years and is the most extraordinary wonderland of strangeness uh and the people he Rai has liberated the people of new japan and they're not really that grateful because <laughs> they were they thought they were okay they weren't okay but they thought they were okay and now they've they're forced to sort of survive and and actually sort of build their own world. And he's sort of watching over there. So it's a, it's a kind of post-apocalypse story, but it's one about, um, it's also a pioneering story. And the, the very simple premise of the Rai book is that Rai and a uh, prototype version of him, who's called Rai Jin, who, is, who looks like a teenage boy, but is, is essentially the same sort of construct, are traveling together, trying to find the last remnants of the father AI, which if they reunite will cause mankind to be enslaved again so it's a quest story it's as simple as that so each each story each issue or each couple of issues is another step in that quest it's really simple to grasp and you get to enjoy the the, the adventures that they have through this wonderland of, of the future earth um and along the way through their conversations you can pick up all the background information that you need to which as i say isn't really a lot there's there's 
sophistication that you might want to learn, but ba- the basic storyline is is there issue by issue, and uh, that, that, that I think it's it's uh, it's it's um, uh, it's charm, if you like. It's uh, it's a very simple story with in an incredibly complex uh, setting, which you obviously get every time you read one of the issues. So the complexity is right there for you. The simplicity of why it's happening is is not hard to pick up. Well, I must say I'm loving what you're doing with that series. I thought issue five was fantastic. And one thing I really liked about issue five is when you have Ray saying that he's trying to be human so he knows how to die. I think that was a, a beautiful quote that you have in that um, issue. And it had me wondering, does he really mean that? Or, I mean, is he really thinking about working towards dying? Is it just something he's saying for the moment? Uh, I, I certainly think he believes it in the moment he says it. Uh, the, the next the next story arc will examine that uh, uh, in more detail. But I think yes, he's he's uh, he's an interesting character because he's he, say he's partly organic, so he's partly a, as it were a real human, but he's partly positronic, uh, and he has seen that technology has in so many ways runaway technology, certainly not just technology generally, but runaway technology has been the ruination of mankind and the sort of caused mankind's enslavement. And that actually it's generally speaking a bad thing. So he is a living example of something that is a bad thing. And whilst he is functioning, he has a very specific task to perform, which is to make sure that father can never come back. But once that's over, he wants to be human and he wants to have the capacity to be finite in the way that humanity is supposed to be finite, that, that you know, like you, you cherish the life you have, but the life is not, endless uh so he's interesting because he's he's sort of technology that is opposing technology he's technology that 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 exists in order to make sure that technology is secured and not a danger and once that's over what happens to him and and to him i think the answer to that is he wants to be human and therefore be able to die and and step away from it Uh, that this is something that we will be exploring in detail but yeah i'm glad you like the line it was uh it was a pretty profound moment because I think up to that point, people have been expecting his underlying motivation to be something rather different. And when he comes out with that, speaking to Gilad in that fifth issue, it's uh, it, I think it is quite shocking. And yeah, I mean, I think the writing in issue five is really beautiful. And I really thought that you also explore by exploring not only Rai, but also the sense of how does he feel towards Ray Jin, which is curiously a guy who's older than he is, but sort of the younger version of him in some yeah. in a weird twist to it. Does he really feel nothing for Regine? I mean, he's part human, like you said. Does he really feel nothing for him? Again, this is yeah. This is it, it's quite difficult to perceive exactly how much is rise is is being sort of very deliberately controlled and not showing emotion, and how much of it is actually him lacking the experience to express his emotions and that kind of stuff. So, so their, their relationship, I think, is is fascinating. Raijin, as you you say, is older. He's he's essentially Rai's older brother. He is an earlier prototype who possesses most of the same abilities, but he was built as a child. He, he is in the form of a child because he was built to be a kind of Astro Boy type mascot rather than a fully fledged warrior defender. So they have this weird relationship where the older brother is the physically old, is the physically younger brother of the younger brother, if you see what I mean. And 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 Rajin has a much more human approach to things. He's much more sympathetic. He's much more concerned about people's welfare and helping people. And he's generally speaking appalled by what he sees as Rai's ruthlessness and severity. And he's constantly nagging him to do things. And in the next arc as you will quickly see in the next couple of issues, 
him nagging Rai is beginning to go, maybe he should be listening to his older brother. Maybe his older brother has got a decent point of view. But that in itself leads them into inevitably, you know, sort of danger and, and problems. Because the once you start sticking up for people and veering from your chosen path, uh, you get into all sorts of trouble. So they're, they're, they're great. They're, they're almost... Um, they're almost like the 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 angel and uh, devil on your shoulder. You know, they're 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 interplay, which I think is really really good. I think there is a genuine sense of care between them. Neither would want anything to happen to the other, uh, and we're slowly peeling back the the motivations. It'll be very interesting to see, and I will give no spoilers, but it'll be very interesting to see if Rai ever gets to the point where he turns to Rajin and expresses in any way, shape, or form a sort of fraternal love or his connection to his brother. Uh, because he's at the moment he very much seems to be using Rajin as just a useful instrument, a, a tool, a weapon in order to get his get the job done. Um, it's it's an ongoing, evolving relationship. And like I said, I think the, the exploration of um, what is it to be human or the human aspect of ourselves is one of the best themes in the entire um, comic in the series so far. And that also I thought it was great that you brought in um, the Eternal Warrior as well. Why did you introduce him, and what perspective do you think he's given to the series beyond Rajin and Ray? Like, what else does he bring into to the table? Well, he's I think uh, Eternal Warrior is is a fantastic character, uh, one of my absolute favourites in the Valiant universe, uh, and I love the fact that that although he is definitely human, we we understand that he is sort of also post-human in, in a completely different way to to Ray. He's, he's not te- technologically boosted. He this guy has essentially lived forever because he is he is being chosen to to be the defender of of earth and the sort of uh, ecological spirit of earth and that has given him huge perspective i mean just like so much perspective it's it's difficult to take into account so i i with writing a book that was was as it were stranded out in the future away from all the other valiant titles i did want to see which characters would be around and therefore i could pick up on and he's an obvious one because of his longevity uh, and I just thought it would be really interesting because his Gilad, the Eternal Warrior's relationship to the Geomancer, who who he is sworn to protect, and is younger and smaller than him, is so similar to Rai's relationship with Rajin. Yet their their approach to their dynamics are completely different. So I wanted to to bring in somebody who was by all, by any other standards would be a great ally for Rai to have, but actually to put them on opposing sides of a conflict. And for for Gilad to really, um, I suppose, criticise or even attack Rai for his attitudes and the things that he was doing, but also himself come to some sort of understanding about why Rai had to do what he was doing. They're, they're great. They're, 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 they're different, sort of different versions of the same dynamic. And that makes them very, very, very interesting to put together. That is really interesting. That's so cool. The Valiant Universe was brand new when I was a kid, right? And my dad got into yeah. it big time. And so I read all these characters my dad would bring home. And then it's it was so cool when they brought it back and started doing them again because it's just it's such a rich universe to, to dive into, you know? Uh, it, no, it really is. It really is. And, it, and, it, and it's, it is a universe, particularly in the case of, for instance, The Eternal Warrior, where uh, and Archer and Armstrong, one of their other great titles, where yeah. where there is a sense of the past and the future too, but particularly the sense of the past and the past presented as as sort of realistic flashbacks to 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 a genuine history, not some sort of fabricated thing. I know it's fabricated, but it, but right. it, they, they, there's more care put into the the sense of the of the past and where they come from. And some of the some of the story. Obviously, I've been catching up on Valiant books to make sure that I am in sync with their continuity and and sort of 
was, as I said, similar to what I was saying about reading DC comics when I first started coming to DC and realizing that I'd really missed out. Uh, with Valiant, I realized, I thought, why have I not been reading these regularly <laughs> the last few years? Because there's some fantastic stories. There are some absolutely superb Eternal Warrior stories yeah. that, that, that Bob Vendetti did. The Wrath of the Eternal Warrior is an amazing series. Uh, there are events like the Valiants, and I'm trying to remember what the other names of the other ones are. But there's several several crossover events they've done that have just been superb and felt that they had real significance to the course of the universe's history rather than just being a cool thing we could do now. You know, right. there was some, some really good stuff. There, there is a great, I think it's called the book of death. It was a four part series. Mm-hmm. that's about uh, the origin of the eternal warrior and the, the beginning of that conflict in the geomancer, which are, uh, it's sort of a, it's a sort of stone age thing and it's just brilliant. So yes, they're, they're, they are a company that is producing within, within the construct of mainstream is still producing some incredibly original stuff. That's so cool. That's so cool. So you talk about you talk about your time with with DC Comics and all the research you did, and you, you're working on uh, Justice League Odyssey. What kind of research did you do for that? Uh, loads. I was I've worked for DC on and off in different ways for a long time, but but a, but a few years ago, around about the time of uh, Rebirth, they asked me to, or just before Rebirth, in fact, they asked me to take on the Teen Titans or the Titans as we were calling them, mm. uh, and one of the part of the remit they gave me was to. See if I could construct a story which allowed for the sort of Silver Age continuity to come back, which I did in a in a series called Titans Hunt, uh, and didn't know that DC was using me as a kind of uh, uh, guinea pig to see if the whole idea of rebirth would work, that you could you could fold continuities back into each other and, and regain some of the things that have been dispensed with. And then obviously I went on to write Aquaman for for. 50 plus issues, which was a, a thing I absolutely adored. I love Aquaman as a character. Right. And um, it was an opportunity to sort of do some real big fantasy world building, which I think worked worked really well and I enjoyed it. But all through those things, loving DC characters I do, I kept saying to DC, I'd like to do something cosmic. You've got a, you've got a wonderful cosmic arena. It's the, it's the thing I'm known for, thanks to Guardians of the Galaxy and Nova and Death's Head and everything else. Let me do some cosmic. And so finally being offered Justice League Odyssey, which is obviously the, the Justice League team that's off in space fighting Darkseid, was huge fun. And it required immense amounts of research going back through the cosmic continuity of the DC universe. But I'm, I'm enjoying it very, very much indeed. And it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a surprisingly, it's a surprisingly difficult book to write, mainly because there, DC, there's so many, there's so much in, interbook connection in the dc universe you're you're happily writing one book but the characters that you're writing and this was the case for instance when i was doing titans where almost every member but certainly characters like nightwing were appearing in at least two other books every month and you had to make sure that the 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 events of what you were doing were not conflicting and vice versa so you know an event comes along and suddenly everything changes and you've got to you've got to you've got to react to that so justice league odyssey absolutely needed to acknowledge and couldn't avoid acknowledging the massive things happening in DC, the DC universe over the last couple of years. For instance, like the collapse of the Source Wall, the rise of Perpetua, and the Apex Luther, and Year of the Villain, and all these things. But at the same time, they weren't my thing to write because they were being dealt with in, for instance, Justice League with Scott Snyder. So, right. so I had to find a way of constructing a story that that acknowledged these big events reacted to them appropriately as members of the justice league had to do 
at the same time didn't kind of steal their story and make it my own because they, that story was belonged to a different book. So I had to kind of forge my own path. And there were a lot of there was a lot of logic to get through to work out a really strong storyline that I could tell that would have an awareness of the rest of the DC universe, but also be its own thing and play its own storyline out. And that's that's what we're doing at the moment. With uh, obviously the, we have a great asset of having Darkseid as our chief villain and one of the main characters, and that's a that's a that's a that's a very big thing in DC terms. Yeah, well, Justice League obviously spun out originally out of um, Snyder's Dark Knight Metal, yeah. and he's uh, and he's hinted at that he has another even bigger sequel to Dark Knight Metal coming. Does Odyssey play into that big picture, or is it going to still exist as sort of like a separate entity? Uh, the, the honest answer is, to that is that I can't really tell you because they're <laughs> okay. playing their cards close to their chest. To be honest, there's the things that we don't want to reveal because of because of spoilers. But certainly, I think some of the characters involved in DC uh, in Justice League Odyssey would necessarily play a part in a, in any bigger story that occurred in the DC universe. So I, I, I'll I'll say that, and you can you can you can you can uh, you can understand that uh, in, in, however you want to. And, and, and of course, we all will. We'll pick that apart and figure out if that's um, connected or not. <laughs> yeah. Okay, how fun is it to write Dexter? He's one of my favorite characters, especially from the Red Lanterns. And it must be fun to, to write a, um, a very powerful cat. <laughs> it is. I, as a cat lover, that's, yeah, it is, it is great fun. In fact, that was one of the fun things that I did. Obviously, I took over Justice League Odyssey on issue six from uh, Josh. Josh had been writing up to then. And there was, there, was, there, was, there was a lot of work to do to kind of, Get it into into a place that that was suited my way of writing. Josh, I think, had had a, a few like like I th- th- found that I was doing as well. Sort of bumped into DC continuity several times, and there was a lot of things that had to be sort of changed and reworked. So, so my first few issues were sort of writing the ship in, in a way that that suited me uh, and what I wanted to tell, and also dr- driving the series through to its issue twelve which is was to deliver a storyline that had been predetermined before I came on the book and indeed before Josh started writing it, that DC wanted us to deliver, which was this sort of, in issue 12, spoiler alert, but in issue 12, there is a sort of catastrophic moment where the Justice League Odyssey are essentially taken apart in the most terrible way by Darkseid. And what you expect to be a triumphant ending to a story is desperately, desperately bleak, which meant which I executed, and I think it's a very, very strong story, even though it's 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 very very dark and sort of pessimistic. But it's a, it's a, it's a very strong story. These are the only people. These are the only people we could get, and <laughs> you're in it now. And that, that there's there's a great fun to that because you know that at any point, any of them could revert to type, and the team is going to collapse around them, and and, and you know, they're, they're going to be there's going to be fighting fighting themselves rather than than anything else so there there is a an inbuilt tension to what's going on um which is which is great fun to play out is there any chance of bleeds coming to the series uh there is a chance yes i won't okay (laughs) (laughs) i just it's one of my favorite characters from the green lantern mythos has always been bleeds my my also, the other thing I think I really like about what you do with your writing, you have a very great dexterity with characterization. And I think that comes out really well with Jessica Cruz. And what I like about it is that from her first appearances really in Green Lanterns, well, not first appearance, but kind of first real attempt at developing her from Green Lantern series to the Odyssey, that you've made her such a more confident character. She's so You feel like the growth in her character from where she started off from that other series. And how, how intentional was that to 
make a point that she has now had enough experience in the comic book world, as it were, to now become a better, stronger, almost leadership leader type character. Yeah, but that was very deliberate indeed. I, I liked her as a character. I like Green, the Green Lanterns, generally speaking. And, she, and, and essentially, she was the one I ended up with because that was the way the story was working. And I love the fact that she was in her early incarnations, as you say, you know, sort of clearly, clearly worthy of the Green Lantern ring, but had these issues. She, she was agoraphobic, for, for instance. You know, she, she, right. she had she had personal issues that, that she felt prevented her from uh, reaching her true potential. I thought that was really interesting. And characters with flaws are always very interesting. Characters with issues to deal with are very interesting. And, and when I took over Justice League Odyssey, but in the course of Justice League Odyssey anyway, from Josh's work into mine, she was the kind of the one who was there by accident. All the other members of Cyborg and Starfire and, and Azrael had sort of essentially been tricked into the situation they found themselves into. But Jess had simply intervened in a desperate effort to stop them and it ended up being trapped along with them and, and, and along for the ride and that made her the sort of in an interesting way the outsider who was sort of the voice of reason the one sort of begging them to change their minds and trying to fight who was the nominal leader to, to try and make things work so given the traumas that i put them through it seemed only appropriate that she would rise to the challenge that whatever the the guardians saw in her would manifest when the moment came and she would be strong enough to do everything and she would be an appropriate leader and she would be fiercely defiant and and sort of you know be able to sh shout down orion face to face and this kind of stuff but that that growth was very very deliberate because she couldn't as it were afford to be weak at that point her back was to the wall and she couldn't afford to be weak and that doesn't mean that i have rebooted her or refitted her or got rid of her past and, and her secret fears in fact they get mentioned quite a lot that she they have she hasn't left them behind but she's grown into herself as a person she she's overcome her own personal obstacles and difficulties in order to fulfill this role and i think that's that's great that's the sort of character i want to read in the comic i want to see a character who is experiencing some kind of growth and change and and developing and perhaps defying the odds to to prove that they are worthy as a hero. That's cool. And, and I've, I've grown to, I've sort of grown to love her. I think when I took the book on, I thought, well, you know, whatever Green Lantern they give me, that'll be fine. But I'm so glad I got Jess. I think she is a terrific character. And I hope that uh, at whatever point we finish this book and she, as it were, returns returns to the to the DC universe for other writers to, to handle, that she is seen in a slightly different light because she's gone through this sort of epic hero's journey that has made her... It, you know, as as tough as any of the other Green Lanterns. Yeah, and I think that's perfect. I mean, I love when characters are allowed to actually grow, and I feel like too many characters they gotta they keep them stasis in this, in a form of stasis because they're afraid of what happens to the audience if they adapt them at all and evolve them. And I think evolving Justice Cruz into that stronger leader is a brilliant move, and I think it's important to that character and to the Green Lantern uh, mythos as well. Yeah, well, I, I I'd like to agree with you strongly there. I, I think I can understand the reluctance. Of, uh, first of all, I can understand the reluctance of any major comic company like DC or Marvel to change one of their characters because their legacy characters are IP characters, and yeah. you don't want to sort of radically reinvent something uh, just to because you're damaging your own property, the thing that, that makes people want to read your comics. At the same time, I'm also very, very conscious of the the reluctance of readers to see new and improved, and I used improved in inverted commas, improved and, and changed versions of their characters 
appearing. They don't necessarily want a, a radically new, different version of a character they've been reading for years to suddenly pop up and take over. They don't want that sort of thing. So, uh, and sometimes those reinventions can be brilliant. I think, to me, the absolute trick of it, the absolute secret of it, and this is the true of comics and it's true of long-running TV shows as well, is that if a character is going to change for any reason, that is an organic result of the storyline that they're going through. So if a character, you know, it gets revised for whatever reason, it grows out of the story. And therefore, we, I think the readers are along with that because they can see why it's happened. It's not an arbitrary change for the sake of refreshing something. It is just the development of a character. And I think, uh, and I think that I think everybody accepts that that can happen. And in fact, the reverse is also true. That, for instance, if I had taken Jess Cruz in this storyline and put her through the events that she's gone through but kept her personality the same because I didn't want to change her as a character, I think I think readers would have gone, I'm not buying this story. How could yeah. she have done those things without it having an effect on her? Whether it whether it was to make her tougher and a greater hero or to make her, you know, sort of collapse in a heap and give up being a hero, whichever, there needed to be a consequence. You can't just do this. To, to, you can't put characters through dramatic circumstances and not expect there to be some kind of, effect on their personality on their characters and on their uh you know sort of psychology so i think i think it's imp- i think if you if you if with whatever characters you're doing it with if you can do that in a book if you can put them into a dramatic situation that has a knock-on effect on them people are completely happy to go along with that effect if you just do it for the sake of doing it that's the moment that people go oh, i don't like it because they can't see why they can't see why right, that right. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I think that's a brilliant what you're doing with them. And another character I think you're doing a fantastic job with is Epoch. So can you give some, us a head of, of what he brings to the story? Yeah, uh, Epoch's an interesting uh, – Epoch, the Lord of Time, nothing to do with Time Lords, I hate to add, but the Lord of Time <laughs> is, is this really interesting character who, who obviously, you know, he, he, is, he is the Lord of Time. He can, he can, he's a time manipulator and somebody who plays around with history and stuff like that. And I, I – I've always, I don't know why I've always liked him. It's probably the same reason I've always liked Kang. But yeah, I've always liked, I've always liked the Lord of Time because, if nothing else, I always thought the the revision to his costumes that were made probably about 15, 20 years ago now were pretty damn cool, and I quite liked it. And I always thought I want yeah. to use this guy. He looks great, um, <laughs> and I wanted to place into the story uh, a powerful individual who who would offset the almost overbalancing power of Darkseid but do so in a completely different way. He was not, Epoch is not Darkseid's uh, equal in terms of physical power or, or godlike power or anything like, like that. But Epoch has got the ability to control something so profound, time, that it actually makes him a, a, uh, 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 an actual rival to Darkseid. Darkseid is potentially wary of Epoch because of what Epoch can specifically do. But I also love the idea of Epoch being... Uh, not harebrained so, as such. He's not. He's not a scatty character, but he kind of exists in a plurality of time, which means that he's quite a difficult person to get on with because he's never the same person twice. And that's okay. something we've had fun with playing around with, where he 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 uh, he's constantly flicking in and out of, of reality because he's he's existing in different times. And he doesn't observe linear time in the same way that other characters do. And at one point, they have a whole conversation about he starts talking and they can't quite understand what he's saying. Is because he's using these weird words that are actually. 
um, uh, vocabulary that, that a temporally adept being would use that are sort of different tenses for past and future that we don't have. And he, he's just a really cool guy. He's, I, I love the fact that he's driven by a genuinely noble purpose, which means that our heroes want to help him. At the same time, he is ludicrously dangerous. And if he gets everything wrong, which he often gives the impression of doing so because he's got that scatty air about him, that everything is, you know, he's literally going to collapse the history of the DC universe and indeed the DC universe itself and all continuity into a smoking pile because he's 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 just made some some accidental miscalculation. So he's a he's a fun character to use. He is the diametric opposite, despite his high level power. He's the diametric opposite to the sort of cold, implacable, immensely powerful role of Darkseid, who is you always get the sense that he knows exactly what he's doing, why he's doing it, and he's planning four steps ahead. With with Epoch, you're going, he, I don't think he even knows it's Tuesday and where he's supposed to be and, and, and where he left his trousers or anything like that. And, and I think that's that's a great uh, contrast to have. So so in your opinion then, oh, well, not your opinion, I mean, you're the writer, but you, Epoch's intentions then are pure. And can someone like him who does live in such a weird aspect of time even have the similar intentions and goals as regular people would have again this is something the story is revealing but I, I i'm certainly writing epoch as if as if he he at least genuinely believes what he is doing is a good thing he has got a noble goal he is driven by a high principle he is not driven by ruthless avarice or or, or a need for power or or you know the sort of destructive impulses of say dark side or luther or whatever like that his his intentions are noble the question that the story is posing is you can can you have noble intentions but still be massively dangerous? You know, is it, just because you've got this this high minded ideal, does it mean you can execute it properly? You know, it, it, are you in your own pure, good, honest way as dangerous as, as as one of the great threats? And I think that's that's an interesting thing to do because because no one, no member of the Justice League, I think, would want to stop Epoch doing anything on the basis of having a chat with him because they go, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I want that too. And then you start to realize how he's going to do it and w what methods he's going to use and the risks involved. Uh, and then you start to go, oh, wait a minute, this isn't, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe, maybe messing around with history wholesale is not a good idea. Uh, and I, I, that, that makes him to me interesting. It, it makes him, if we're regarding him in any way, shape or form as a villain, and I don't think we necessarily are, but if let's just say for the sake of argument, the Lord of Time, Epoch, is a villain. He's a really interesting villain because even he doesn't know he's a villain. And gotcha. that and that to me makes him a really interesting antagonist in a story because because you don't it's it's not conventional and you're not dealing with him in the way that you would deal with a Lex Luthor or a Brainiac or a whatever. Yeah, well, one thing I thought that was kind of interesting in, in reading your last issue of Justice League Odyssey is that it seemed like it was implied that the events in Infinite Crisis, that the, the big event, Infinite Crisis, are back in continuity. I don't remember if it was ever stated that they were, it was back in continuity before. Uh, yeah, he makes an allusion to that. He makes, he, makes, he makes a speech which sort of, sort of alludes to different things. Uh, I, I am not saying that I have officially brought something back into continuity. What I am suggesting is that Epoch has got a profound multiversal grasp of all the possibilities of things that could and would have happened and and therefore is alluding to things that may not have happened in this DC universe but could happen in or ha could have happened in a DC universe he's got he's got he's got if you like that comic book readers overview of the history of the DC continuity and how 
you know, doing something here would change this and, and you know, this reboot here would change that. And, that. and essentially that's what he's doing. I suppose in some respects he is a satirical commentary on what the big universes do to themselves on a regular basis to see him <laughs> and everything like that. He, I mean, he does, he even talks about continuity and rebooting and, and this kind of stuff all the time. And, and, and there are, I think, I, I think it's fair to say I'm being quite wry about the relationship between the big publishers and their readerships and the fact that, you know, readerships love it when something big happens. And also there are readers who go, no, 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 you can't reboot it. I don't want another reboot. And this is, this is, in some respects, in a very soft way. I'm not saying this is a big, profound story, but in a very soft way, what Epoch is, produ- is, is proposing is rebooting the DC universe. And he can give you all the really good reasons why that is not only a great thing, but actually a, um, uh, uh, a worthwhile thing and a needed and a valuable thing, all the, all the bad things that it will get rid of. And at the same time, there are people there going, yeah, but I know this universe and yeah. I think I think maybe that's 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 a dangerous thing to do, and I think you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater and all that kind of stuff. So so although the story wasn't constructed to do that, I think along the way we have a little a little sidelong commentary about the about the way not just DC, Marvel, everybody might might look at the way their long term continuities work and, and and how they how they clean yeah. things up. There is a huge need in the comics industry at the moment. It seems to me to make everything absolutely brand new and fresh to attract new readers and I, and and i and i although i think it's been done many times very successfully over the years i always question that because i go back to my 9 year old self when i started reading marvel and then slightly after that dc you know i i walked in and i bought you know issue 170 whatever of daredevil it never occurred to me to worry that I hadn't read the previous 160 whatever issues. I just started reading from where I started. I started reading the X-Men at the beginning of the Proteus story in the very early days of Claremont and Byrne. I mean, luckily, it was a great point to jump on. But the point is, it didn't occur to me that I'd missed years of storyline. I just went, well, I'm going to catch up. I'll find out what's going on. And I think that's that, – I think we're – I think the industry is sort of doing a disservice to its readership into assume that they're too, dare I say it, too stupid or too lazy to do that themselves. If somebody yeah, yeah. wants to read Spider-Man or or Justice League Odyssey or whatever the book is, they want to read it. They want to read it. Just make sure that each issue is accessible enough to make them enjoy reading it, and they'll keep reading it. And then at some point, maybe they'll go back and catch up with where they were. And in fact, again, in this day and age, that is an easier thing to do, thanks to things like Comixology or to the publishing programs of, of trade paperbacks that are available in the comic shops. If you if you pick up an issue of, I don't know, the latest issue of The Flash, and you go, I love The Flash, that's great. Oh, my God, there are 749 previous issues that I've missed. Um, yeah, yeah. I start, you can now go back and read those things. Systematically, you can work through, you can take recommendations from, from your comic shop or your friends or from message boards, what are the key stories I need to read? You can go and find them. They're still published. You can collect them. You can download them. You can do that. You can fill in the gaps. Again, not to make it sound like it's the saddest story in the world and I'm playing the world's tiniest violin, but when I was a kid, you couldn't. You couldn't go and find the stories. There were no trade paperbacks. You just bought the latest issue and hold on tight whilst you got the, got, you kept going with it. Um, and I, 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 just, I just think it's, it's sort of, we're sort of doing a disservice assuming readers don't want that. If somebody if somebody doesn't want to read the Flash that much, then 
giving them a new issue number one of the Flash, and I'm, by the way, I'm picking the Flash at random here as a hypothetical. But you know, yeah. giving them a new number one each month is not going to make them keep reading. Just give them a good comic, and yeah. that's that's yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll well, get off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, I mean I think you're exactly right about the importance of renewing characters. One thing I again I really like that goes on and is going on in Justice League Odyssey is that you guys are are utilizing Azrael, who seems like for way too long was considered just like the gimmick from the Batman Nightfall series. You know, he beat Bane, he was Batman for a little while, he's kind of gimmicky in that in that sense. But you, I always loved the character, and I love the fact that you're using him again. Do you think Azrael gets the love he deserves? Uh, I, I don't necessarily think. I, I, he does get the love he deserves. I'm, I'm really delighted he's in this book. I've always loved Azrael. I think he's got a fantastic look. For a start, going right the way back to his early appearances, I just think he's he's terrific. And uh, to me, the biggest problem with Azrael is the, the, from the from day one. Although it was a very interesting story that introduced him, the biggest problem with him is there is already a Batman. You know, <laughs> why yeah, exactly. are we doing a version of Batman? But the, with that aside, he's a potentially very interesting character. And I think the, the point at which I have inherited him for Justice League Odyssey, he's got a very distinctive sort of this sort of monastic, religious, spiritual outlook and this fierce look we're obviously playing with in, 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 to an even greater level because he is he has, no pun intended, gone over to the dark side in this story <laughs> because he's been overwhelmed by uh, the, the powers of apocalypse. But it, he's just a great character. And people were saying to me, God, why have you put Azrael, who is traditionally a street-level Gotham, real-world vigilante hero, in a cosmic book alongside Cyborg, Starfire, and a Green Lantern. And I went, have you seen him? He's the perfect cosmic character. I mean, he just, he just looks great, and he, he works in that. Just, the idea that he, he's sort of gone out into space because he sort of wants to pursue this great spiritual quest, I think it, I think it works perfectly. So whatever we can do to make Azrael a, an interesting and popular character in the DC Universe, uh, again, I think he's great. Like I said, I'm, characters like he, him and indeed people like Blackfire and Orion, I'm so pleased that I've got them in the book because they are lovely characters. It's something that drew me to when I was working on Guardians for Marvel. The reason I assembled the Guardians of Galaxy team that I did, that then went on to become incredibly famous in the movies, but the reason I assembled them was because they're all the characters that I had loved. They weren't, none of them were A-grade characters that everybody wanted to see in a book. They were sort of characters that had partly worked or, or had been forgotten or had never quite clicked. And... And I, and I didn't care because I'd loved reading Star-Lord and Rocket and characters, their, their stories growing up. And I thought, wouldn't they be interesting in a team? And there's a sort of feel to that in 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 Odyssey where, where they're characters that not you wouldn't necessarily expect to headline a book on their own. But aren't they interesting when you put them together? And to me, that's part of the appeal. That, 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 that we're, I'm trying to tell an interesting story with interesting characters, not just, just load a team up with, with crowd, instant crowd pleasers just to get people in through the door. It's funny about Azrael. Like growing up, I hated that character, and I only hate him because, like, not because. So, reading the books, he was great in the books. I just hate him because he wasn't Batman. You know, right? I was a huge Batman fan as a kid, and I'm like, oh, this guy's st- stupid. He has a dumb costume. But secretly, I read, I read like every issue he was in. I got the mini series for Azrael. I picked up his solo series. I read, I got the Azrael and Ash series by Quesada and Palmiotti. You know, but deep yeah. down in my head, I was like, oh, this character's dumb because it's not. He's not really Batman. You know, but. I'm glad he's coming back. Cause I actually, I actually do like the. I mean, obviously, I always did because I kept reading him, right? But I'm glad, yeah. to, I'm glad to see him no, back. In. Yeah. If you've seen, if you've seen, if you've seen Azrael drawn by Joe Casada, you know how incredibly cool he can look. I exactly. mean, he's just an amazing character. And, yeah. I, and I, and I, 
weirdly, although I used that ex- explanation myself, that the, the one thing I didn't like about him was that there was already a Batman. That's kind of a weird thing to criticize him for, because how many other proto-Batman characters are there now in the DC universe? How many other characters who've either stood in for Batman or been Batman's replacement or whatever? You know, there are so many. Why single Azrael out for the hate? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's funny. I mean, he was never a Robin. He just showed up one day. You know, I don't don't know. But it's it's, I'm I'm happy to see him there because his look in the Odyssey book is when he looks freaking cool as hell. And he's just a cool character. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, we've been talking about an hour and a half now, man. This has gone. This has wow. flown by. <laughs> I warned you. I, I said it's like my writing. Once you get me started, I don't shut up. But I, I know it's I great. Useful thing to you. It's great. It's great, man. I, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank you for giving us your time today and uh, and talk with us about you know the the world of, of Dan Abden. It's been a lot of fun going on this journey and learning about about all you've you've done in your history and stuff. It's been a lot of fun. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure, and I hope I haven't rambled on too uh, too inanely. Oh, you were no. fantastic. You were fantastic. We would love to have you come back on to talk about Aquaman sometime because we didn't get to that, and I'd love to have a whole Aquaman stuff with you because we have sure. questions about that, and sure. he's a cool character. Yeah. Awesome. So that's actually my favorite Aquaman run, by the way, was your King Wrath run. Thank you. I enjoyed that very much. It was a great thing to work on. Excellent. Well, Dan, you have a great day, and thank you so much again. Thank you. I'll talk to you again soon, I hope. So what do you think, Kenrick? I think it's awesome. I think so. I think, I think it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I think that first story that he or that story near the beginning. Yeah. You know, and I'll let you recap it, but that was uh, that was really funny. Oh, but how he got into Marvel Comics and his friend gave him the the, the yeah. anthologies and he got to read like sections of stories, but he exactly, didn't have the full exactly. stories because of how they printed them. Yeah, <laughs> dude, it's it's. I was I was laughing at when I was laughing hard. I actually went up and told Kaylee about that too. So I was like, hey, guess what? <laughs> this guy did yeah. this. He made up his own stories, and you know he's the guy who did the. He, they based the Guardians of the Galaxy movies off of his his stuff. He's currently writing Ray for Valiant. He's working on uh, Justice League Odyssey for for DC. Um, he created Death's Head for Marvel UK back a long time ago. Although it was kind of funny, I made him feel old because he started working for Marvel UK um, the year my wife was born in '87. So he's like, oh right, damn it, right, <laughs> right. You, you you like to make people feel old. Well, I'm old myself, and <laughs> I like to. If I can feel, I'm young, like eight years older, but you look older. It's because I have gray. I have gray hair, but more hair than you. All right, that's okay. You do have a lot of gray on you. It's though. all, but gray. you grayed early. So I tried graying at 14. Yeah, that's just like my nephew Jesse. Yeah, yeah. I went full, early. I went full gray at like 29, 30. So that's oh, crazy. Well, hey, that yeah. was a great interview, Johnny. Thanks for doing that. You and Jeff sounded like you guys had a lot of fun. Oh, it was great. And. Mr. Abnett was amazing. Hopefully we can get him back on again. But if you like that and you want to hear more interviews with the people that you're interested in, then go over to spoilerverse.com because there is a ton of stuff there. There are so many interviews with so many great comic book writers, artists, actors, directors, musicians, composers, producers, producers, you name it. We talk to them. I mean, it's just, there's, I don't want to name drop, but let's name drop a little bit. We got Emily Swallow. We got Jerry Conway. We got Robert Wool. We got the great everybody else Robert you can possibly Wool. think of. Everybody. We yeah. got them all. Small. Everybody. Yeah. It's it really is quite amazing. You really should go over there and check it out. You'll have a lot of fun. We have a ton of articles that come out on a daily and yeah. so many other podcasts that are on the spoilerverse.com oh, it's website. You really got to go check them out. There's, there's something there for everybody. Yeah, there is literally probably 600 episodes of content for free with no paywall you can go listen to right now. Yep. So, you should do that. 
So if you like all that and you want to be a part of the Spoilerverse, you can, there's a couple ways to join. You can get on Twitter yep. and you can like us on Twitter and we'll, you know, going back and forth with us there. You can get us on the Facebook page, Spoilerverse or Spoiler Country. Yep. And you can get us on there. And if you really, really, really love us, then you can get on your podcatcher on your smartphone and, you know, Review. search for Spoiler Country. Yeah. Hit subscribe and you'll get all the newest content. And then to go above and beyond, something to really, really help us out is get on iTunes or get on Google Play or whatever your favorite podcatcher is and give us a review and tell them why you like us or maybe something we can do better. I don't know. But whatever you want to do, help us out. It does help a lot. Yeah. And if you want to send us some comments outside of public eyes, you can just email us at spoilercountrygmail.com and we'll... Uh We'll respond to it eventually. We're not very, we're not, we're not the most, the best about getting back to emails, but we do eventually. I think I responded <laughs> to an email right. a month ago from a guy who emailed us back in 2018. And I felt so bad about it. <laughs> All but right, I'll, guys. I, but I'll call myself out. So I'll call it there out. There you go. All right, guys. I think that's a show. That's a show. Thanks you so much for joining us. Don't forget, in our oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind and read more.